and we made it, you know, we, I guess we're, we're going to make it out of our dark winter, uh, unlike, uh, another superpower nation that did not make it out of its dark winter, uh, which is the, uh, union of Soviet socialist republics and the, uh, basically the main topic of the book that we're going to be, uh, doing a, like a deep analysis of today, which, uh, we've mentioned before in a bunch of different episodes. It's like an interesting window into the Reagan Bush uh, milieu of the 1980s and the final years of the Soviet Union, and that is uh, Peter Schweizer's Victory, which I think came out in 1994. And uh, we've talked about Schweizer before a little bit. He is the, and I do, I don't think this is a coincidence. Uh, he is the William J. Casey Fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Cool. <laughs> pretty cool uh, yeah and yeah, uh and i think title. he he made i think he he kind of probably made his bones uh probably <clears throat> this book that he wrote in 1994 probably went a long way towards uh him getting that vaunted title because the main protagonist of it really is william j casey uh yeah, ronald reagan's cia is. director yeah there's no one who uh, has done more to hold that chair than Peter Schweizer uh, in this book. Uh, mm-hmm. It really is mm-hmm. all about, yeah, the main character is definitely Bill Casey. Um, yeah, sure. yeah. And, you know, even uh, though this this book is, like, relatively obscure, we'll get into, like, it's popped up again in, in a few ways. Um it's like uh, it's almost like Christopher Lash for MAGA people, <laughs> you know, like a yeah. little bit. It's like whoa, yeah. like this this guy wrote this back in like the early '90s, but like you know, it uh, it explains like certain people in the Trump administration found this book and wanted to apply the sort of uh, the lessons and the strategies and tactics that are described therein uh, towards its policy towards Iran um, over the last couple years. Uh, but basically, like mo- most people are probably more aware of Peter Schweizer from he's a pretty regular face on Fox News. I think he goes on Tucker Carlson all the time. And uh, he made a little bit of a splash, I think, back in 2016 with his book Clinton Cash, which, you know, uh, exposed all the shady financial dealings of the Clintons. And uh, he's written a few kind of like expose, like kind of muckraking books in uh, more recent years usually focus on the uh, the demon rats and the Clintons and people of that nature. And so this book kind of like it went out of print and, you know, he doesn't really talk about it much anymore. And it kind of just uh, kind of like faded away uh, from, you know, the historical conversation. But I think it's interesting. I stumbled on this book like years ago when I think I first read about like uh, Project Hammer in the sort of 9-11 conspiracy world. Um, and, you know, which was supposedly a secret, uh, like financial kind of sabotage, uh, operation that was masterminded by mainly by president George HW Bush and some other people like Alan Greenspan in the very late eighties, early nineties to like bankrupt the Soviet treasury and like bring down the entire Soviet bloc and like bust out their economy, you know, like the Mm -hmm. mobsters that they are. And I think when I was like searching for project hammer somehow in the search, this book popped up and it was kind of a close. And, you know, if you look at the cover of it, it sounds uh, tantalizingly relevant. It says, uh, the Reagan administration's secret strategy that hastened the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
And so I got, oh, interesting, you know? I like that Hasten is doing a lot of work there, uh, Uh you might say. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, but that, it's interesting because I actually, like, it's weird to kind of know, like, or could kind of think about how the collapse of the Soviet Union is seen differently in different circles. Like, I Mm -hmm. think that generally, like, people of, you know, as you mentioned, like, uh, there's there there was definitely like a moment for this book in the in the Trump administration vis-a-vis Iran like Pompeo mm-hmm. uh you know was big into it and wanted to apply the lessons there to uh collapsing the Iranian uh you know the, the Islamic Republic um mm-hmm. and uh yeah like uh, but it's interesting because you know generally in those circles they kind of would cleave to the idea that uh the Soviet Union was destined to collapse I guess you know yes. and that it, it, like because like the underlying ideology was like a rotten attack on you know the values of country or whatever you know like uh mm-hmm. of all yeah exactly um and yeah but uh yeah this is basically all about how uh it actually was like uh brought about by like a particular a series of like geopolitical decisions um Mm -hmm. uh, exactly often uh led by bill casey um yes and uh and pretty much like all kinds of personalities in the reagan cabinet and the national security council and yeah you're right it does uh this this book interests me uh one of the real like the most interesting uh dynamics of it is kind of like navigating that contradiction because Peter Schweizer of how we look at the Soviet Union and like why it collapsed, because I think uh, he he spent some time in the early part of the book kind of breaking down, you know, really uh, taking a stand on the side of it was not inevitably doomed to collapse. However, he's also writing from a pretty anti-Soviet and anti-communist perspective and a very kind of right-wing American perspective. So he has to take pot shots at the Soviet Union along the way and say, you know, they are, uh, they're, you know, that their economy is not great and that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's like internal, you know, dissension that, uh, has to be kind of managed. And there's like, there's, there's vulnerabilities and choke points, but he kind of, um, he really contrasts himself with a lot of the quotes from like very, very smart people at the time. Uh, he quotes in his, you know, introduction that, um, And this is interesting as well from like maybe people who weren't even like left wing, but they were establishment, you know, uh, economists and, you know, political thinkers, academics, things like that. Uh, Like he writes that uh, that Arthur Schlesinger declared after a 1982 visit to Moscow, quote, I found more goods in the shops, more food in the markets, more cars in the street, more of almost everything except for some reason caviar. With his literary guns directed at the Reagan administration, he summed up that those in the U.S. who think the Soviet Union is on the verge of economic and social collapse, ready with one small push to go over the brink, are only kidding themselves. Schlesinger compared these Americans with Soviet officials who saw capitalism in its final stages, noting that there were on both sides wishful thinkers who always see other societies as more fragile than they are. Each superpower has economic troubles. Neither is on the ropes. He says noted economist John Kenneth Galbraith made a similar assessment in 84. 
quote, the Russian system succeeds because in contrast to the Western industrial economies, it makes full use of its manpower. The Soviet economy has made great national progress in recent years. Distinguished Sovietologist Sewerin Bialer of uh, Columbia University opine in foreign affairs in 82, the Soviet Union is not now or will it be during the next decade in the throes of a true systemic crisis for it boasts some enormous unused reserves of political and social stability that suffice to endure the deepest difficulties. Nobel laureate Paul Samuelson put it even more strongly in his textbook Economics in 81. It is a vulgar mistake to think that most people in Eastern Europe are miserable. And Professor Lester Thoreau at MIT claimed as recently as the late 1980s in his textbook The Economic uh, Problem, can economic command significantly compress and accelerate the growth process? The remarkable performance of the Soviet Union suggests that it can. In 1920, Russia was but a minor figure in the economic councils of the world. Today, in a, today, it is a country whose economic achievements bear comparison with those of the United States. Uh, and Strobe Talbot, who I feel like has gone on Infowars before, um, in a highly charged uh, article when Time magazine proclaimed Mikhail Gorbachev man of the decade, declared that the doves in the great debate of the past 40 years were right all along. He claimed that anti-communists like those in the Reagan administration based their views on, quote, a grotesque exaggeration of what the Soviet Union could do. It was believed to be possessed of immense and malignant strength, including including the self-confidence, prowess, and resources for the conduct of all-out war. The record, though, indicates that the opposite was largely true. It was the liberal and left that consistently overestimated the strength of the Soviet regime. As liberal left economist Robert Heilbrunner admitted in dissent, the farther to the right one looks, the more prescient has been historic foresight. The farther to the left, the less so. You know, that. so that, that lays out right there that... Um, the sort of like the lamestream uh, experts in the early 1980s were absolutely not predicting the imminent collapse of the Soviet Union. However, and yeah. I think he, this is from 94, so he doesn't have a lot of time, but I think sitting in 2021, I think we can confidently say that the normative belief amongst so-called experts and historians and uh, whatever nowadays is that the Soviet Union was destined to collapse. And Schweitzer yeah. is pointing out that this this understanding of it is kind of inverted, where it, basically the sort of more liberal, uh, detente kind of establishment, uh, they thought that the Soviet Union would... It, it sounds like the, the way the real battle lines were drawn was like they didn't believe the Soviet Union could be taught, was too stable to be toppled, and probably largely for that reason believed like one should not try to topple it because yeah. you're going to cause all kinds of problems. And it was Reagan who believed that it was vulnerable to collapse, but it needed a push and we ought to give it that push. And he did mm -hmm. according yeah. to this book. But I think, I think he's not, I think Schweizer does actually a pretty good job of at least, uh, outlining these different initiatives that were secretly, you know, uh, cooked up in the White House with a very small group of, like, senior-level officials and advisors and basically uh, were rolled out to increasingly devastating effect throughout the 1980s and then basically kind of laid the groundwork for the final uh, coup de grace uh, during the Bush era in, you know, from 89 to 91. Yeah, right. It's an but yeah, parallel to Iran. I mean, we were talking just before the show, like I was saying, like, uh, you know, I was talking about how 
everyone always or you know uh maybe less so in in certain quarters you know maybe among like academic historians in the same way that sovietologists didn't think the soviet union could ever collapse maybe mm-hmm. they don't believe that the iranian uh you know regime uh, the mullahs you know uh could collapse mm-hmm. whereas uh but i i do feel that you know even across the political spectrum really there's uh people always saying like they're, you know it's about to collapse it's about to collapse but of course like it never uh does um mm-hmm. you know uh it's kind of it's almost like a QAnon level of uh sort of failed prophecy that's always happening like every time there's some kind of protests like the ones that seem an aeon ago now uh that we witnessed relatively recently uh mm-hmm. in, in iran um uh that you know people were saying like this is it you know this is uh it's a bit like the mullahs are it's gonna crumble it's happening uh, yeah, yeah um but uh yeah i mean but you did rightly point out uh, as i was saying that that you know maybe there is parallel with the soviet union there and if uh you know pressure were applied uh in the same way or like as effectively like maybe you know uh very many countries could be could be brought down but uh mm-hmm. i don't know i mean of course these parallels like are imperfect uh, i think that there's like ma- obviously many different factors uh well i i mean i think they're they're perfect because of course yeah the ussr and iran were in kind of slightly different eras and like they're different countries but i think the tactics that were employed by the u.s government in the 1980s against Mm -hmm. the eastern bloc have basically just continued and expanded and become more sophisticated over the last 30 to 40 years and which isn't to say that they're always 100 percent successful I think they've had successes and they've had failures. Um, but mm. I think you see that, and of course, you know, this goes all the way back to economic warfare tactics that Bill Casey sort of learned and developed uh, going all the way back to World War II, where he was in the OSS and was put in charge of a kind of like economic sabotage uh, operations using agents inside of Germany. Um, to attack the Nazis. Um, now, of course, he would become a very good friend to uh, ultra right wing uh, anti communist forces uh, after that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he very quickly and enthusiastically turned his attention on destroying communism, uh, which, you know, he kind of pursued uh, throughout the rest of his professional life. Um, yeah. And I think. The, there's even a connection with him with kind of like uh, we'll have to do a, a whole episode on this book one day but uh, uh, Martin Borman Nazi in Exile that's a book that Dave Emery references a lot and uh, I've only read through a little bit of it but I know that uh, Dave Emery is like you know cited a lot of passages that talk about how Bill Casey was somebody who was kind of like he was an international he was a young you know up-and-coming banker an OSS guy who was sort of given like stewardship of some of these Nazi uh, money laundering accounts like you know kind of underground Reich like uh, uh, I think what uh, maybe that book and Emery always calls like the Borman Capital Flight Network so, like, all of this wealth that basically was spirited out of the country to whether it was to Switzerland or to South America or laundered through the Vatican Bank. Like, Bill Casey was one of the guys who was kind of, like, put on that detail right at the end of uh, World War II. So we're talking about a guy who goes back very deep in the game and uh, with the kind of shadow economy world of, like, Mark Lombardi and uh mm-hmm. and he had developed but he never really got i think uh a chance to be like at the helm 
like leading this kind of um, economic warfare campaign until he became CIA director in 1981. And then uh, it seems like this was really the centerpiece of like his entire directorship and his vision for uh, re-beefing up the CIA after it had taken some lumps in the 70s uh, and using it proactively to disrupt the Soviet Union's economy, their culture, their political movements, etc., on like almost every level, and wage an entire psyop campaign on them from like multiple different angles. Like basically, throw everything on the board, like everything we can do to undermine, retard their economic development, like uh, uh, undermine deals that they're doing with European countries, escalate the the covert war in Afghanistan, uh, provide billions of dollars to solidarity underground. Uh, activists um in poland and then later in the czech republic uh you know this book what i love about this book is uh that even though it doesn't have an index uh or it seems like a table of contents or or anything like that or or footnotes yeah not really footnotes like most of the sourcing yeah no table contents yeah yeah oh it does have endnotes it does have endnotes yeah sorry okay uh, it's got some endnotes it has endnotes (laughs) but you know what Uh, what i what i really view this book this book as as like an oral history from like people that were in the reagan administration and were involved in these secret operations like it it, because most of the stuff is directly from interviews with like john poindexter casper weinberger uh glenn campbell richard allen don regan uh william clark robert mcfarlane richard pipes uh all all these people that had various roles within the reagan administration like the national security council and some of them I think some of those names popped up like in Contra one and like the October surprise uh, that um, wasn't it. I think it might've been uh, Richard Allen who was like, you guys are just too stupid. Like, Oh, like what are you from like a PBS network in Boston? Like what KGB unit is paying you? You know, like that guy who was just like a a total asshole uh, to Robert Perry. And um, right. And so, you know, you got him in the mix. Uh, and, you know, a, a couple uh, kind of Reagan loyal, like William Clark, his first, uh, Reagan's first national security advisor was like a longtime aide and, and friend uh, to Reagan. So some of these people came from the very like reactionary, like California crowd, like going back to the 60s. Other people were, you know, these like spooky, just sort of uh, military intelligence world uh, kind of hands. And of course, you have, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush kind of putzing around in the margins, though he doesn't get, I'll say from the outset, like George H.W. Bush doesn't pop up so much in this story. He pops up less than you might imagine him to. And I almost found that a little bit suspicious, uh, almost like uh, not to say that Bill Casey didn't wasn't like spearheading a lot of these things. I mean, this book does not really get into like Iran Contra stuff. It mostly covers up to from like 81 to kind of 87 um, around the time that, uh, you know, uh, Casey became ill and then, you know, died of a brain tumor before he could testify, et cetera. Uh, but, but George H.W. Bush is kind of like around, but like, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't, it seems like he was kind of read in on a lot of this stuff, but was not like part of the core group as perhaps like you might imagine him being. But I wonder if that's just like Schweizer being kind of smart and like not trying to wrap the bushes too much. 
up because, of course, Bush was the president who like succeeded Reagan and then presided over the actual collapse of the, you know, the the, the communist bloc, the, the Soviet bloc uh, from 89 to 91. And the book doesn't really get into like, well, you know, if they were doing all this subversion in the 80s, what were they doing? from 89 to 91 to help, you know, put the final nails in the coffin because they absolutely were doing something. Um, you know, I, I, you know, the idea that George H.W. Bush just kind of sat on his hands and went to a few summits with Gorby and, you know, promised him that NATO wouldn't uh, encroach further east or whatever. And then just the internal contradictions just, you know, did the rest of the work. Uh, I don't buy that at all. But, you know, I think this is a valuable uh, oral history of the guys who are essentially bragging about what they did. That's the other fun thing about this book. The interesting thing about it is that these guys are like boasting that they basically killed the evil empire, the evil communist empire. Like they mm-hmm. did it. And they're like, if only yeah. we couldn't tell you at the time, but let me tell you how we, we totally fucked them over. And they're really like enthusiastic to like take responsibility for it. Um, n- not that they would uh, feel not that it would, they would get in trouble for it or anything today, but maybe, just given the way the world has turned out, they would be li- a little bit like less ebullient than they were in 1993, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. You know, so uh, so you get these guys really kind of like telling on themselves in all kinds of interesting ways. And if you're reading this from any more of a uh, kind of a anti-imperialist perspective, they really kind of incriminate themselves in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. just like enthusiastically yeah. bragging. Right. It's very different vibe than like these guys sitting down with like Robert Perry, who they view as, you know, like a fucking hippie, useful idiot, piece of shit liberal who's like trying to get mm-hmm. them. You know, they look at like this young buck, uh, Peter Schweizer, this young nerd um, who the dust jacket says lives in McLean, Virginia. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, uh, he's definitely down mm-hmm. with like the whole CIA crowd. Uh, they're speaking to a very sympathetic audience, and so they really kind of open up. I mean, Bill Casey is not interviewed because he's dead by the time he wrote this book, but a lot of these people kind of fill in anecdotally kind of what was Bill Casey up to and all these other things, and he was up to a lot, mm-hmm. pretty much, right? Yeah. <laughs> He definitely um, was up to a lot. He's like constantly, je- like you know, jet setting uh, all around the world. You know, uh, just yeah, it's crazy. Like through his diplomacy, you really get a picture of he's a good focus because you really get a picture of the global scope of all this intrigue. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it definitely is. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, to see this kind of like uh, you know alternate uh, stance than than what you uh, often hear about the kind of ideological victory of the over the, in the Cold War. You know that it was like a fair fight or whatever. Whereas this is more bragging about you know uh, causing the collapse, uh, mm-hmm. which yeah is uh, unique and, and definitely uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, it yeah. would be, you know, it's more interesting perhaps than, uh, you know, a, a non-sympathetic analysis uh, of how, like, this collapse was caused because it's, like, an inside perspective that, yeah, is really, I think, bragging is an apt description uh, or <laughs> at least, like, valorizing what was done and, you know, uh, yeah, applauding. It makes sense that this would be something that would be consulted as like a, a manual by people who are looking to apply the same ideas uh, to other, other contexts. Um, For sure. You know, and, yeah. 
and even I think it has a lot of relevance to even like the geopolitical tensions that exist between Russia Definitely. and the U.S. today. Like in and also in, like the uh, like China and the the relationship between China and the United States is a really interesting part of this book to me, uh, especially mm-hmm. because oh, sure. you know, a lot of it really pivots on or has to do with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and mm-hmm. uh, the sort of like. You know, the Saudis play like a huge role in this and like the uh, a lot of what motivates them is their concern over the possibility of like an Iran style uprising in Saudi Arabia. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, there's like uh, lots of uh, diplomacy going on between the Zia government in Pakistan and, and Bill Casey. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, especially like uh, vis-a-vis the whole Chinese situation where it's really like something that's very interesting that uh, I think we definitely should go into is uh, mm-hmm. the way that China kind of tried to make strategic concessions to like actually the Uyghur minority in uh, Xinjiang province, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, uh, quote unquote new territory, uh, yeah. you know, to try to sort of play that uh, against Russia. Um, and they were seen as, you know, by Bill Casey and by the United States in general as like a potential ally against the the soviets and uh you know despite mm-hmm. the fact that uh they were communist and uh all of that uh yeah that that know, is they, something that i kind of didn't expect uh, jumping out when i started this book was like the very cozy relationship uh in some respects between like the intelligence apparatuses of china and bill casey yeah they took you like, know, a lot and of like ideas these, from him and it's crazy because they really had like their own sort of like radio free Asia, you know, uh-huh. like, uh, yeah, and like, uh, you know, yeah, it's interesting to see like the kind of uh, same ideas uh, uh, be sort of reversed uh, and instrumentalized like in, in a different direction. You know, they would uh, kind yeah. of, uh, yeah, and they sort of, well, they were, of course. The friction between, like, uh, the CCP and the Uyghurs uh, goes back, like, a long way, but they Mm -hmm. kind of strategically, like, modulated their position uh, in that Mm -hmm. struggle, like, in order to uh, make uh, Russia seem less appealing and, like, conducted a massive propaganda campaign, like, partially at the behest of Bill Casey to try to, yeah. you know, uh, manipulate these, uh, like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's fascinating because it is, yeah. like, a literal kind of mirror. It's, like, a yeah, an inversion of what uh, China claims is being done to them in Xinjiang nowadays, that, like, Western or, you know, uh, Turkish kind of influences or Saudi influences are trying to stir up the Muslims in that region when, yeah, in the 80s, as you said, they basically were trying to stir up the ethnic uh, Kyrgyz population and, like, the ethnic um, Muslim groups that were in, yeah, like, uh, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and stuff and trying to stir up shit inside of the Soviet border and doing it kind of, like, in collaboration with a very right-wing U.S. administration and, of course, also providing arms uh, to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. That was another thing they were doing. Yes. And mm-hmm. we're even entertaining the idea of like, if there could be some kind of like Islamic separatist violence that happened in the border regions and yeah. in Soviet central Asia that would, you know, become uh, like attacking that soft underbelly of the USSR. Like they were totally, 
here for it. And I mean, you just hate to see, you hate to see, you know, two communist superpowers like, you know, fighting like this, like what, and like one of them collaborating with like Bill Case, like what the, ugh, the uh, Sino-Soviet yeah. split, really, you're feeling the fucking reverberations of it all throughout this book. It just yeah, like how I mean, it was like it, it, so it easy for America to to slip in there and play them against yeah, each other. Yeah, it definitely goes to show as well that like some of the uh, put on obliviousness to like the concerns about like religious freedom that they uh, you know show now, like uh, in the current uh, sort of situation in in, in Xinjiang, mm-hmm. they like you know it kind of shows how that is uh, a little bit uh, put on, where like they definitely knew enough to like try to like scale it back when it came down to trying to like position themselves as you know more friendly to islam than to than the soviets they were able Mm -hmm. to understand that this is like you know hostile to like people's practice of their religion but like now they're like what are you talking about you know it's just uh yeah well and i i wonder to what extent like their the, the feeling of like the security apparatus in china is like a you know it remembers the, these 1980s eras and like are uh, afraid of this thing being weaponized back towards them the way they once weaponized it uh, to to get at the Soviets like they they inherently see like a I don't know trends of religiosity or whatever is kind of like something that was weaponized by a hostile mm-hmm. actor that's like coming to get yes. them or something like that. Like, like they've already kind of put this into like the box of like a kind of national security paradigm back in the eighties. And so perhaps that, that has seeped into the thinking like even today. Uh, and yeah, there definitely is yeah, like a it, sense of like the, yeah, the instrumentality of it where they uh, definitely saw this as something that could be used as a tool uh yeah but i think that that definitely there is like a on on some i'm sure like you know maybe there are some who kind of have forgotten but i think that there definitely is like a uh a memory uh that exists um which you know i think definitely indicts uh their policy as well as like serves to explain it in some ways it's a a case of projection that we often encounter in talking about these geopolitical things where uh yeah for access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom For trying to change the system from within I'm coming now, I'm coming to reward them First, we take Manhattan. Then we take Berlin. I'm guided by a signal in the heavens. I'm guided by this birthmark on my skin. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. First, we take Manhattan. Then we take Berlin.